welcome to week four of Sundays with Sean. So actually, we only have a couple questions this week, so this should be a relatively short one. The first question is about what happened to the people who were involved in the CIA program in terms of repercussions in their career. And the second is what actually happened to kind of, what did psychology do, um, I guess, as a field when all of this came out? And they're two really interesting questions. So I'll start with the first one. What happened to those involved in the program and I would love to have a better answer uh, than to be honest I'm pretty sure nothing happened so if you watch the documentary from last week you'll have seen that basically the so for example if you look at uh, Mitchell and Jensen in their contract with the Central Intelligence Agency they had written in their protection from any kind of um, liability, if you will, for the program, and the CIA um, granted that. Now, what has actually happened since, and, and you'll see this from the Vice documentary I put up in this week's lecture, is several lawsuits have been filed by ex-detainee members um, of, the, uh, of the actual program itself who have, been, uh, who have, have launched lawsuits against him because of his actions in the program. And what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to insert into this video um, a quick New York Times clip um, that kind of talks about some of their experiences um, and also a little bit more about that lawsuit. So in terms of what's happening to the, I guess, the architects, if you will, let's focus on them. Currently nothing. Um, I mean, James Mitchell, they made $81 million in contracts. I mean, obviously, James Mitchell has since sold a, a large number of books bro uh, broadcasting that he was, in fact, the architect. Um, so they haven't had any notable repercussions though there are still lawsuits ongoing and, and you know we're not quite sure where those will end up um obviously they've had like professional affiliation stripped and things like that but but largely um not too many consequences in terms of the cia itself one of the things that you'll see and so if you for example googled biden cia director torture just as, a, as an example i haven't done it myself but i'm relatively sure you would see that the, there was a conversation a few weeks ago about how many of the, the potential directors of the CIA had their, have had elements of their careers associated with this program. So from an internal CIA standpoint, there haven't really been any repercussions. And I think, though I would want to fact check this before you ever quote me on it, I think the only ever conviction from the Enhanced Interrogation Program to date is a whistleblower who leaked information on it. I would have to check on that, but I do believe that's the case. So in terms of a, a consequences standpoint, there haven't really been any. And I think that if you, one of the chapters we wrote in the book was about this concept of kind of, why do we not learn from history and why do we keep making the same mistakes over and over again? And I think one of the reasons in that institutional failing if you will to learn the lessons of the past is often a lack of accountability and specifically when things come down to it's an organizational question and it's a much bigger debate than this mere sunday with shortland answer but the how does an organization handle the the immense pressures placed upon it in a counter-terrorism world with accountability and that's a it's a philosophical debate but it, it taps or it touches every aspect of the psychology of of national security from 
the debates around you know invasions of private data, drone programs, the use of autonomous weapons, um, torturing when it needs to be done, you know, sting operations are the same thing. There's a really interesting balance of accountability and the need to respond. And one of the things we find in our own decision-making work, which I'll be talking about later in this course, is when you amp up accountability, it often inhibits sometimes even the actions that you want to happen because people become very scared of what's going to happen to me. And so there's a really interesting balance that needs to be struck. And, and, and in this program, it seems that the approach was um, nothing will happen to you, don't worry, you know, go do what you're doing in the name of national security. And in hindsight, many people would argue that that is too far in one direction. Um, but it's, it's a fundamental national security conundrum, balancing the need for action in an uncertain world of shadows and the need for accountability to stop people from uh, maybe running too far. And, and I do say that's a national security issue, but again, I mean, I would argue it's a, it's a fundamental business question. I mean, look at the 2008 financial crisis, look at Wall Street. You know, where's the accountability for the 2008 financial crisis? Again, if, if you what was the movie I watched the other day? I think I watched The Big Short the other day, or maybe Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, featuring Shia LaBeouf. Great movie. You know, the only person arrested for the Wall Street crisis is like one clerk or something like that. You know, you often find that the, the people leading these things where there's large level institutional policies that are problematic, often the they don't suffer the highest level of accountability. And if you want, we can have a, a very, very long conversation about general corruption in the world. But um, that's definitely something you see in this one, that there's been not a lot of accountability for the CIA members themselves and not a lot of accountability for the, the Mitchell, and, uh, um, Mitchell and Jensen today. Though, as I'll, I'll put in after this answer, there is an ongoing lawsuit. And I think it's important for you to see that so you can see the the plaintiffs. The one thing I will say, and it's interesting, one of the part of that question I was asked was, are the are those individuals released? And a little while ago I organized a, a guest presentation by a Boston-based lawyer who, whose name escapes me now. Um, but their their law firm launched a program or, or a, a, a legal effort to get three detainees released from Guantanamo Bay who were incorrectly um, kind of captured and, and put in Guantanamo. And in order to get those three individuals released, it was the largest ever pro bono effort by a law firm in the United States. So just so, just so you realize the scale of getting a few people released from Guantanamo Bay who never should have been there in the first place, it is the largest pro bono effort in the history of a US law firm. And I'll, 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 when I send you this email, I'll link the story to that one um, so you can have a read, because I'll, I'll, I'll dig up the individual's name and I'll send that over to you. But that's what um, getting someone out of Guantanamo Bay looks like. And they had, they had experienced many of those things. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dark period. Now, the question of what did psychology do is a unbelievably complicated story. So the first thing to know, I guess, or the first kind of question to, the first point to answer would be that there was a thing called the Hoffman Report, which was a privately contracted legal investigation of 
what the American Psychological Association did and knew in the lead up and um, I guess kind of running of the enhanced interrogation program. The Hoffman report is very damning on on um, on the APA. It points out that senior APA officials colluded with the DOD in order to stop the APA from establishing ethics codes or ethical code of conducts that could have prevented or would have prevented the involvement of psychologists from interrogations uh, at that time. So the argument is that the APA were colluding with the DOD in order to allow basically DOD to keep funding things and funneling money to the APA and to psychologists and all this kind of stuff. So there's this, the Hoffman report kind of points that there's this big organizational collusion between the APA and, and the Department of Defense to allow kind of these unethical interrogation practices to continue and to allow the involvement of psychologists to continue. There is also some pushback on the Hoffman report. And so I'm affiliated, for example, with Division 19. So it's the American Psychological Association's Division of Military Psychology. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I was recently the chair of one of their um, early career researcher panels. Um, and so I firsthand saw that they, I think five or six years later, are still trying to get the Hoffman report taken off the internet. So there's, there's the, the CIA issue, there's the Hoffman report, and then there's now the anti-Hoffman report movement claiming that the Hoffman report was biased because it was basically a targeted hit job on, on psychologists. It, honestly, I, when I tell you it's, it's, it's years and a degree's worth of study to unpack all of this, it absolutely is. But one of the things that's so interesting is that the APA immediately um, banned all psychologists from facilitating in basically the care and treatment of detainees in Guantanamo and other kind of um, similar areas. So it actually led to the full removal of military psychologists from that area of kind of national security. And the argument that I've, that I've heard encountered to that and from a lot of people I know is that a lot of those psychologists were providing care and treatment. You know, if you, as you can imagine, and as we talked about, the, the immense psychological stress and strain of these kind of uh, experiences. You need clinical psychologists there in order to ensure that they're okay and provide some form of treatment to the detainees. Um, and that actually has kind of been kind of stopped alongside this kind of stopping psychologists from engaging or supporting the interrogations themselves. So the view from, from, from Division 19 is very much that the APA has overreacted to a degree in terms of, in terms of um, pulling all psychologists out of the area. And there were significant efforts to remove psychologists from national security writ large. So the, I, I would argue that there was a very, very strong reaction by the APA, but it was done in part as a reaction to this kind of legal analysis and this legal case, the Hoffman Report. Um, and I can, I can um, I'll link in this video below, um, hit subscribe, hit like, I'm joking. Um, I'll link below a link to kind of a, a story about the Hoffman Report if you want to read more about it. But it is, I mean, I gave it one week's worth of content, which is an absolute disgrace given how complicated this story is. But there is so much, and we still live and breathe it today. Every time I go to a Division 19 meeting, 
six years later, there's still 20 minutes of discussion on the Hoffman Report and all of this kind of stuff. So this is something that, that psychologists, and especially psychologists who are associated either with the, with the military or the national security side of things, still living and breathing the repercussions of this, even now. Um, so in no way are the, are the repercussions finalised nor dealt. We're still almost in a process of still trying to work out the truth of what, what happened and, and how it all happened. And that, almost linking back to my, my previous answer, that all just kind of comes down from this idea of, of psychology and the fog of war, which is something I, I've always kind of, I've got a very keen interest in studying and I'm, I'm obviously kind of a part of it. So thank you very much for the questions. I, I collected a few into those kind of broad what happened next kind of categories and I'll I'll put in this video the kind of the the New York Times clip about kind of the the lawsuit against the, the two architects just so you can enjoy that. So thanks for the questions as always I really enjoy them and I'm looking forward to next week so have a wonderful day. We were soldiers doing what we were instructed to do. This is Bruce Jessen, a former military psychologist who became a CIA contractor, and his colleague, James Mitchell. Uh, any expertise in the art of interview? My God, I'm a clinical psychologist. Interviews are what we do. They've been described as the architects of the extremely harsh interrogation program used at secret CIA prisons after 9-11. Uh, Jim and I went into a cubicle sat down at a, at a, he sat down at the typewriter and together uh, we wrote out and typed up the, the list that I've seen in the documents here uh, that was submitted. They're now defendants in a case brought by some of the men tortured in those prisons. Suleiman Salim, Mohammed Ben Soud, and Obaidullah, the nephew of Gul Rahman who died in custody. This is the first time that Mitchell and Jessen are facing lawyers for former detainees. We exclusively obtained video depositions from the case, which is scheduled for trial in September. Watch throughout as Mitchell and Jessen attempt to defend themselves, both rhetorically and emotionally. If I want to get information from you, Dor, I don't want to slap you. I don't want to wall you. I don't want to waterboard you. Uh, even if you're my enemy. Jessen, who's never spoken publicly about his role, at times appears to wrestle with what happened, whereas Mitchell, who wrote a book about his experiences, comes off as more polished and assertive. I disagree with this, the suggestion that w we were architects because we weren't breaking new ground, you know, in the sense that, uh, that architects do. Mitchell and Jessen didn't directly interrogate the two surviving men who brought this case, but the methods they proposed were used on them and at least 37 other men. A fascinating aspect of these videos is how their accounts of enhanced interrogation dramatically differ from what the detainees describe. I'm a pretty good judge of what it's like to be wall. I remember also them putting a cloth around, tying a cloth around my neck, and then they are punching me on the wall. Oh, it's discombobulating. It's not painful. Um, uh, my guess would be that some of the folks sitting here have been walled. It, it stirs up your inner ears, and uh, it's like being on one of those whirly gigs or something. Mm -hmm. You know, you move around quite a bit, and, it, and uh, in the, you know, uh, it's, it's 
In fact, you, if it's painful, you're doing it wrong. There is a tether anchored to the ceiling in the center of the detention cell. The detainee has handcuffs and they're attached to the tether in a way that they can't lie down or rest against the wall. Uh, they're monitored to make sure they don't get edema if they hang on the cuffs too much. Um, Holding so-called stress positions for hours was another technique used on detainees. I remember being tied on the wall, handicapped on the wall. I, I couldn't go up or come down. This is Jose Rodriguez, former head of the CIA's counterterrorism center. On 60 Minutes, where you um, analogized the stress positions to um, working out in a gym. Correct. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that's a good analogy to what the, the kind of discomfort that the stress positions cause? I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. So you don't know? I answer. don't know. I can't describe how painful it is. Do you presently experience the pain? Yes. Can you describe for me the pain that you feel presently? Maybe I need to tie you here so that for one hour so you can feel the pain if you want to know the pain. <laughs> we take a break. We can take a break. In this next section, we hear Mitchell talk in almost casual terms about simulated drowning, which the U.S. had long considered torture. The plaintiffs in this case were not subjected to this technique, but other detainees were. I mean, you thought waterboarding was a bad thing, was a, a, a painful thing, right? No, I thought, it, I thought it could be done safely. I thought he would be uncomfortable. It sucks, mm -hmm. you know. It's, uh, I don't know that it's painful, uh, well, I saw an interview. but it's distressing. Mm -hmm. I saw an interview with you where you said it was <coughs> as between uh, somebody breaking their leg and somebody being waterboarded, most people would choose to have their leg broken. Do you remember saying that in an interview? No. Okay. Now you're using the word painful. I'm using the word distressing. Okay. Two things are not synonymous in my okay. mind. Uh, the, the pressure is designed to be used in a way that it doesn't harm, but it makes someone uncomfortable. And they're more irritating than painful. This entire case, really, gets to the question of personal responsibility within a larger system. If you feel the government is pressing you to cross boundaries, to what extent should you resist? We also didn't want to use waterboarding. We ended up uh, in a video conference with Jose Rodriguez and a bunch of folks. And uh, prior to that, Bruce and I had said, we're not going to continue doing this. And what they said was, well, we'll you guys have lost your spine. They kept telling me every day a nuclear bomb was going to be exploded in the United States, and that because I told them to stop, I'd lost my nerve, and it was going to be my fault if I didn't continue. I think the word that was actually used is, is that you guys are pussies, there's going to be another attack in America, and the blood of dead civilians are going to be on your hands. If you won't follow through with this, then we're going to send somebody out there who will because we worked for them and they wanted it continued. Justice Department lawyers approved the techniques 
Based in part on what Mitchell and Jessen told them, they concluded that the techniques would cause no lasting harm. And by their reasoning, that meant they wouldn't amount to torture. Do you think that the enhanced interrogation techniques could result in long-term harm? No. Why is that? It never did. I don't know that for a fact. It, mm -hmm. It's one of those things that you can establish. If, if they're out there and that happened, then, you know, show me the data. I think none of the men that I was involved in with while I was involved with them experienced anything that would have led to that. I'm very convinced of that. Have you suffered any psychological injuries uh, as a result of your captivity in Cobalt? Of course. What are they? Mahom. Alcobis. Nightmares. Can you tell me about these nightmares? Alcobis tatini fi. It comes uh, to me during my sleep, and as if I'm still imprisoned in that horrible uh, place, uh, and uh, still. In addition to recurring nightmares, Mr. Bensoud describes feelings of anxiety, fear, and worry. Salim also describes ongoing effects. When asked about his feelings of isolation, he responds. I don't feel like being with people. I like being by myself, but I don't like walking around to see people. I feel like I'm so weak and I can't do anything. Mitchell and Jessen continued working with the CIA for many years. They set up a contracting company and ultimately they ran many aspects of the CIA's interrogation program. For that work, their company received $81 million. In the end, whether or not Mitchell and Jessen or the former detainees prevail in this case, it's already had a profound effect. At a time when the world still confronts the threat of terrorism, we now know much more about a recent episode in U.S. history.